This is episode two of the Hall Mills murder tragedy. The Hall Mills murder mystery of the 1920s is a tale of scandal, tragedy, and intrigue that has captivated the public for decades. On a fateful September night in 1922, two innocent bystanders stumbled upon a gruesome scene while on a romantic stroll down a secluded lover's lane. What they saw would haunt them for the rest of their lives. Two lifeless bodies, a man and a woman, were found on lover's lane. The man had been shot once in the head, and the woman had been shot three times. She had a deep gash across her throat, and her lips had been sliced. More shocking than the scene was the identity of the couple. They were none other than Edward Wheeler Hall, a local minister, and Eleanor Mills, a member of Edward's choir. The couple had been in a forbidden love affair, as evidenced by the torn love letters found scattered around their bodies. The public was in an uproar as rumors of corruption within the justice system started to spread. The prosecution had originally declared the case open and shut, but soon turned on James Mills and the couple who stumbled upon the crime scene, Raymond Slender and Pearl Palmer, accusing them of murder. Justice Parker of the New Jersey Supreme Court, however, cut through the chaos and appointed a new prosecutor, Wilbur Mott, to restore order and attempt to uncover what really happened that night. The investigation shifted toward Frances Hall, Edwards's widow, and her two brothers, Henry Stephen and Willie Stephen. Henry was known as a marksman and firearms expert, while Willie had been a quick temper and was reported to own a 32 caliber revolver. It wasn't completely impossible that the brothers found out about Edward's affair and his betrayal of their sister and decided to kill him. Adding fuel to the fire was the revelation that Edward had planned to run away with Eleanor on the day that they were murdered. It seemed more and more likely that Frances or at least her family, had something to do with the murder. Even if there was no real evidence pointing to it. As the investigation into the brutal murder of Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills continued, a key witness stepped forward with crucial information. Her name was Jane Gibson, and she was a 50-year-old pig farmer who lived with her 21-year-old son near the crime scene. Jane claimed to know the murderer and had tried to reach out to George Totten, the lead detective on the case. But it seemed Totten didn't want to speak to her. It wasn't until the police and the prosecution took notice of her statement that she got to tell her story. On the night of the crime, Jane heard her dogs barking and assumed it was a thief trying to steal her crops. When she looked out her window she saw a man walking out of her field, his gait a little odd. She quickly followed the man, keeping a safe distance and hiding in the shadows. She heard voices arguing, and then, without warning, 
the sound of a gunshot ringing through the air. Jane ran back to her home, hearing more gunshots as she bolted her door. Although she couldn't hear their conversation, she felt it was clear they knew each other. Jane provided the authorities with time figures and other details, including that she saw a woman leave the scene shortly after the first shot and a man with bushy hair holding a gun. Despite her testimony, the mystery only heightened because the police quickly learned Jane was incredibly unreliable, a fact George Totten perhaps already knew, and thus chose not to entertain Jane Gibson. She seemed more like a woman who relished the media attention she got from giving interviews. Her statements were often sensational and dramatic, with new and revised details added each time she spoke to the press. There came a point when she stopped talking to the police altogether, and the police had to rely on the media, of all things, to keep up with Jane's stories. Jane's claim that she saw Frances Hall kneeling over the bodies and asking for their forgiveness was just one example of her tendency to add more and more sensational details to her story. Extra, extra, read all about it! The newspapers, of course, ate up every word. With a story as delicious as a church man having an affair with a sexton's wife, every detail, true or false, was another buck in the bank. It also helped that Francis came from a wealthy, powerful, and noble family. With every new issue published, the public became more invested and also increasingly outraged over the lack of progress in the case. The police were caught in a never-ending cycle, trying to solve the mystery while being bombarded by updates from Jane and the newspapers. They were left questioning whether they could trust her and the case seemed to come to a stall. The public was further incensed by allegations of corruption within the prosecution and police, who were accused of being influenced by Francis and her family. Innocent people, including James Mills, Raymond Slender, and Pearl Palmer, were constantly pressured and harassed despite having solid alibis while Francis, the prime suspect, never saw the inside of an interrogation room. The case quickly became a symbol of the public's distrust of the justice system. After much public uproar and demands, despite no concrete evidence linking Francis or her brothers to the crime, the trial against the family began on November 20th, 1922. On one side was Prosecutor Mott, armed with the unreliable testimony of Jane Gibson, and on the other was an army of lawyers defending Francis and her brothers. As Prosecutor Mott began his line of questioning, he turned his attention to Francis Hall. With all eyes fixed on her, he asked her about her whereabouts on the night of the murder, and her knowledge of the illicit affair between Edward and Eleanor. 
But Francis was unfazed, answering each question in a calm, confident demeanor. Mott threw everything he had at her, but it was soon clear he was facing an uphill battle against a well-prepared defense team, and the jury was left to wonder if he would be able to make a compelling case against Francis. Her poise and self-assuredness only added to the difficulty of Mott's task as she refused to waver under the intense scrutiny of the courtroom. In the face of such a formidable defense, Mott was left with a daunting challenge. Getting nowhere with her, Mott shifted his focus to James Mills, asking him about his whereabouts on the night of the murder. As difficult as it was for him, James calmly recounted his version of events. It was night by the time he returned home from the church, and he came back to find his wife already missing. His children told him Mama had confided in Charlotte about Edward and how she loved him and was planning to run away with him. Then, after dinner, she cleaned up and left into the night without so much as a goodbye. When he returned to his children, worried and afraid, he left again to look for her at the church. He looked for Edward, too, but as far as he could tell, the place was dead. Having nowhere else to go, James tried to contact Frances several times, and the one time she responded, she told him they might be dead. Despite the seemingly straightforward testimony, Prosecutor Mott was relentless in his cross-examination. He grilled James, trying to find any inconsistencies in his story that might implicate him in the murder. But the defense was ready, countering each and every claim made by Mott with a well-honed argument. But Mott had one remaining card, the testimony of Jane Gibson, who claimed to have seen Francis Hall kneeling over the bodies, begging for forgiveness. Unfortunately for Mott, Gibson was the easiest to pick on, given the rampant inconsistencies in her story. The defense was prepared, knowing this full well. What surprised everyone in the courtroom, however, was the defense's bold move to suggest that Jane Gibson herself was the murderer of Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills. In an odd pivot, Mott found himself arguing that one cannot commit such a heinous crime impulsively without a clear motive or reason to hate the victims, which was countered by the theory that Jane did have a clear motive. She thought they were stealing her crops. Mott pointed out that as an older woman, Jane would not have the strength to overpower two people at once, and killing them so brutally for such a petty reason, seemed implausible. It could sooner be a jilted ex-lover of Eleanor before it could ever be Jane Gibson. This line of questioning was getting them nowhere. Mott was desperate to pin the crime on anybody who knew the victims, and the defense was prepared with ironclad arguments. With nothing else to go on, the defense focused on getting answers. They cross-examined James Mills' children, Charlotte and Daniel, 
asking whether they knew about their mother's affair or any other pertinent information. Charlotte did because Eleanor told her, but Daniel didn't. Not until later, after their death. With all accusations falling flat and nobody being any closer to an answer than they were before, the public felt the entire thing was a waste of their time. In the end, the case was eventually dismissed against Frances Hall and her brothers, as the defense successfully cast doubt on the prosecution's claim, leaving the jury with more questions than answers. The bold move by the defense to implicate Jane Gibson only added to the drama of the trial. The public, of course, wasn't content. The Hall's family was known for their corruption and bribery tactics to manipulate the higher-ups and the police. They were certain that Francis and her brothers were the people responsible for the brutal murder of Edward and Eleanor. But as time passed, the memory of the case faded. And truth be told, the townspeople wanted to forget as well. As new shiny scandals came about the town, the story of Edward and Eleanor became an old story buried in an old newspaper. The residents of the town seemed to be doing everything in their power to turn their backs on the tragedy, as if by doing so, they could somehow make it disappear. That was until a shocking revelation was made on July 8, 1926, nearly four years after the murder. Arthur Reel, a pianist, filed for divorce against his wife, Louise Geist, the maid of Frances Hall. In the court proceedings, Arthur made the shocking claim that Louise received a hefty sum of $5,000 from Frances to keep quiet about her alibi for the evening of the murder. He even stated that Louise was the one who informed Frances of Edward and Eleanor's escape plan and knew about their secret meeting place at Rush's Lane. This was a turning point in the case, as it was now possible to prove Frances and her brother's involvement in the murder. This revelation captured the attention of not just America, but the entire world. The governor of New Jersey, Harry Moore, ordered for the case to be reopened and appointed Alexander Simpson, a special prosecutor, to build the case from the ground up. And he did. As he went about building the case again, new information and players emerged in the twisted and mysterious case of the Hall Mills murders. The crime scene, which had been trampled by the throngs of onlookers, was now compromised and not much help anymore. But there was still a glimmer of hope within the public that the town was one step closer to putting a powerful person away forever. With the reopening of the case, all eyes were once again fixed on this gripping story. On November 3rd, 1926, the trial resumed against Francis, her brothers Henry and William, and their cousin, Henry Carpenter, who was accused of aiding in the bribery of the police and prosecution 
to cover up their involvement in the murder. The stage was set for a showdown, and the world eagerly awaited the outcome. Would justice be served, or would there be yet again another twist in the infamous Hall Mills case? Soon enough, more evidence would come to light, including the details of the love letters exchanged by the forbidden lovers. Thanks for listening.